We long for that day when faith becomes sight and we will see the Lord as he is and we will rejoice to be in the full presence of his glory. Until that day, if you have a Bible, please open to the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 14. We have now been studying through this book, the Gospel of Jesus, according to John, for one year and two weeks. For one year and two weeks, it's been our joy and privilege each and every week to see Christ in the pages of His Word. To see Christ, to read His words, to study His life, His example, His teaching. Last week, we considered verses 15 to 24, and so today we will continue on and move into the next section, the final section of chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. It's important to remember that here in chapter 14, Jesus knows. Jesus knows that he is soon going to be arrested, crucified, buried, resurrected from the grave and will then ascend back into heaven. But here in these moments before his arrest, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is about to come. He is comforting them. He is instructing them. Jesus wants his followers and us included to be strong to be confident in Him, to be trusting in Him and in God's perfect plan. And so Jesus says many incredible and, in, and many comforting things in this chapter. In verse 1, Jesus has said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says in verse 16, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Here, of course, Jesus is talking of the coming gift of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that Christ and the Father will send and the Spirit will live in and will dwell in every follower of Christ. In verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. These are great and precious promises. Jesus here instructing and comforting his disciples, wanting them to know and to have and to experience his peace. So let us read together John 14, verses 25 to 31. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe." I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has 
no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you tell us, you invite us to come and to pray to you, to ask for your help, to ask for your wisdom, for your grace, for whatever is needed to glorify you. And so, Father, we, this morning, we come. And we come not because we are worthy to come, not because we are worthy to ask for anything, but because through Christ we are made worthy. Through Him can we come boldly to Your throne of grace. And so we come. And we ask that You would please give us understanding regarding these verses that we have just read. Open our eyes, open our hearts to see and to behold the truth concerning, concerning Your goodness, Your grace, Your salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ. Father, we want your spirit to accomplish his good purposes. Your good purposes of drawing us to yourself. Of making us more like Christ. And so we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. This morning, we want to ask and answer six questions. Six questions that seem to confront us and present themselves to us from the verses we have read. Question number one, uh, why should we trust the Bible? Why should we trust what the apostles wrote and recorded in the Bible? Is it reliable? Is it, is it really trustworthy? Question number two, what is this peace? That, that Jesus gives and how is it different from the world's peace? Now, in full disclosure, just to give you fair warning, we are going to spend the vast majority of our time answering this second question because it is of great importance. Question number three, why should the disciples be glad and even rejoice that Jesus is leaving and going to the Father. Why would they ever do that? Wouldn't it be so much better to have Jesus not ascend back into heaven, but to remain on earth with them? Question number four, why does Jesus emphasize that he's telling his disciples all these things in advance? Why is that important? What's, what's the point that Jesus is making? Question number five, why doesn't the ruler of this world have any claim on Jesus? What does that mean and who exactly is the ruler of this world? Who is Jesus referring to and why should that be a comfort to us? And then lastly, question number six. Why is Jesus' obedience to the Father a testimony to the world of his love for the Father? So question number one, please note it on your outline. Why should we trust the Bible? Why should we trust what the New Testament writers, the apostles, wrote and recorded in the New Testament? I think that in part, the answer is given to us in verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
So Jesus here, he is making the most of this short time that he has with the disciples before he will ascend back into heaven, where he will ask the Father and together they will send the Holy Spirit who will dwell with and be in his children. And Jesus says here that this coming Holy Spirit will teach these men, that that, that he will bring to their remembrance all that Jesus has said and done. So how can we trust what the New Testament writers wrote concerning Christ. Well, the Holy Spirit would teach them and would bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said and did. Friends, listen, the fact is your memory is just not that good. My memory is just not that good. I can hardly remember what I had for lunch two days ago. I can barely remember the the birthdays and even sometimes the names of my three or four kids. I mean, our, our memories, it's just, it's just not that good. Listen, based solely on human ability, there is no way that we could or should trust what the apostles have written, but they were not writing based solely on their ability. They were guided, helped, directed by the Holy Spirit who is perfectly reliable and trustworthy. Over in the book of Second Timothy, The Apostle Paul explains how precious and valuable and trustworthy Scripture is. He says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for... Now, listen, brothers and sisters, hear this list. This is a good list. This is a helpful list that informs our thinking up to the importance of Scripture, of the Word of God. Paul says that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we want to grow, if we want to mature in our thinking concerning God and this life, then we must go back to God's Word again and again and again. We must go back to Scripture because it is here that God teaches us, that God corrects us, reproves us, trains us in righteousness. The Holy Spirit uses His Word which He inspired to refine us, to refine you, to make you like Jesus The Apostle Peter in the book of 2 Peter explains that those who wrote God's word were not, they were not just writing down whatever came to their mind. They were not just writing down their thoughts and their opinions and their preferences concerning God and Jesus and life and the Holy Spirit. No, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, the human authors wrote, but what they wrote was guided, directed, superintended by the Holy Spirit Himself, as He was teaching them and bringing to their remembrance all that Jesus had said and done. How can you trust the New Testament writers? How can you really believe that what they wrote is true and accurate and reliable? Friend, the answer is found in the Holy Spirit. 
The answer is found in the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, because He would teach them. He would bring to their minds all that Jesus had said and accomplished. I think it's fair to say that these verses here in John 14 form something of a foundation for the existence of the New Testament. In fact, note this on your outline from what Jesus says here. The disciples should have expected that they would teach, that they would write, that they would record what Jesus had done and said. And I think this explains why, in part, in the book of Luke, the very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples is a command that they wait. That they wait until they have received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Luke 24 verse 49, Jesus says, and again, uh, mind you, this is the last thing that Jesus says that is recorded in the book of Luke. Jesus says to his men, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city. Don't go anywhere. Don't try to go out and minister in my name and do what I have called you to do until you are clothed with power, until you have received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, then and only then are you to go out and to minister in my name. So why is God's word trustworthy and reliable, even though it was written by human hands? Because the Holy Spirit is trustworthy and reliable. And he guided, directed, and inspired each human author to write exactly what he wanted. So brothers and sisters, we should come to the word of God with great trust, with great expectation, with much prayer. Asking that God would do his work to refine us and to shape in us to the likeness of Christ as we study his word this morning. Look with me again now at verse 27. Verse 27, where we will spend the majority of our time together, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Question number two, what is the peace that Jesus gives and how is it different from the world's peace? I think this is a particularly important Fair and and relevant question in light of what Jesus says. And please notice that before we say anything else about this verse, it is good to note that these are precious words. Here, Jesus gives and makes the promise of peace. And who doesn't want peace? Anyone here this morning want to want to raise their hand and object to peace? And say, I I want no part of peace. I want nothing to do with peace. I don't want peace in any way, shape, or form. No, of course. In fact, I think it's fair to say, please note this on your outline, there are lots of things that we purchase and use to try and get peace of mind. We, oh, we, we want peace. We want peace of mind. Now, I'm sure that I am overstating my case, at least a little bit, by what I'm about to say, but I think it's fair to assume that at times we are tempted to say and think things like, 
I'm not really that afraid of getting a car in a in a in a in a car accident, in a automobile accident. I'm not afraid of a of a of a fender bender because I always wear my seatbelt. I, I I wear my seatbelt. We have state of the art airbags that give me peace of mind. I have unbelievable insurance. So if I get in a car accident, I'm I'm not that worried about it. I think we even say and think think things like I'm not even really that afraid of a of a of a fire in my house. I have state of the art smoke detectors. I have unbelievable house insurance. We will surely get out. We will be able to rebuild. I have peace of mind. In fact, I'm not even that afraid of dying. If I die, I have amazing health. I mean, uh, life insurance. My wife and kids are going to be rolling in the money. They will be just fine if something were to happen to me. I'm certainly not afraid of identity theft. I have life lock. I have fraud protection on all 17 of my credit cards. I, I, I'm not even afraid of my computer crashing. I pay three different companies to back up all of my computers, all of my pictures, all of my data every five seconds. I'm, I'm covered. I have peace of mind. We, we purchase, we use a lot of things in this life to give us peace. It's obvious that in some way we want peace. This is why busy and frustrated people and tired and anxious parents say things like, I just want a little peace and quiet. This is why we love and we appreciate law enforcement officers because we want them to keep the peace. We want them to arrest anyone who is disturbing the peace. When someone dies, we say, R.I.P., rest in peace. We give a lot of lip service to peace. Everybody at some level wants peace, seeks peace, craves for peace, however they define it. Next, we should observe that. Number two on your outline, whatever this peace is, and and we haven't defined it yet, whatever this peace is that Jesus is offering, it is something that the world cannot give. It's something that the world cannot give. Jesus says this explicitly in verse 27. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. So Jesus gives a peace that the world cannot give. Jesus gives a peace that is infinitely greater than anything that the world has to offer. And yet implied within Jesus' statement is the reminder that the world does try to give peace. The world does try to provide some measure of peace. The world seeks for peace through political means, through military means, through law enforcement means, through economic means, through charitable means, through educational means. And listen, those are not bad things. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. We are for a fair and just political process. We are for a well-armed, capable military to defend life and to promote justice. We are for law enforcement to uphold the law. We are for good economic principles. We are for charitable organizations who do good and helpful things. We are for education that expands and develops our thinking. But these things in and of themselves cannot give the peace that Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about that kind of peace that the world can achieve. Jesus is talking about something far greater, far richer, something of infinite value and significance. And this leads us to number three on our outline. 
This peace that Jesus provides, notice, is a gift. It's a gift. Something that he himself would earn and purchase for us. Jesus says this when he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I, I give it to you. It is, it is a gift. Please notice that Jesus does not say, my peace I have hidden somewhere in this room. Good luck finding it. Jesus does not say, my peace I have purchased and I'm going to hang on to it. And when you perform enough, when you entertain me enough for my approval, for my delight, then and only then will I think about giving it to you. No, not at all. Jesus says that he gives this gift of peace and that this gift of peace is something that he himself would earn and secure. Let me say it like this. The reason why Jesus can promise peace, the reason why Jesus can give peace, is because he's about to go to the cross to secure it for his people, to purchase it, to make peace a reality through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. On the cross, friend, Jesus died as our substitute. He died as the once For all, sacrifice for sin. Jesus willingly took upon himself the wrath of God, the shame that you and I deserve so that he could then give peace to any and all who would turn to him, to any and all who would place their faith and trust in him. One pastor named J.C. Ryle, living about 150 years ago, wrote this about the peace that Jesus gives. He says the peace which Christ gives, he calls my peace. It is specially his own to give because he bought it by his own blood, purchased it by his own substitution, and is appointed by the Father to dispense it to a perishing world. So the peace that Jesus gives was purchased at a very high cost. But we still have not yet answered the question, what exactly is this peace? What is it that Jesus has purchased? What is it that Jesus gives to to us? There is a verse in the Bible that I think so beautifully explains and elaborates this This very point so well. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. I believe this is on your outline. The Apostle Paul writes. Therefore since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith. In Jesus, not through faith in your goodness, not through faith in your works, your religious works, your charitable works, your environmentally friendly works, not through faith in those things, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says we are justified and thus have peace with God. Please note this on your outline. Justification and peace with God are inseparably linked together. Or we could say it like this. Justification is the foundation of peace with God. 
The good news of Christianity, the good news of the gospel is that you can, through faith in Christ, be justified and have peace with God. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds good. That sounds very exciting, but what exactly is justification? What is this that, that comes to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Well, please note this on your outline. Justification is a declaration made by God. It is a declaration made by God, and it is not contingent upon your feelings or upon your performance, but upon the perfect finished work of Jesus When we repent of our sins, when we turn to Jesus in faith and trust, we are justified. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. We are made righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done for us. All who place their faith and their trust in Him are declared righteous, are declared just, forgiven, innocent by God. And so the Apostle Paul would ask the question in Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who could bring any charge of sin or wrongdoing against God's elect, God's children, God's people? And then Paul answers that question with these words. It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies through Christ. Listen, those who are justified cannot ever have any charge of sin brought against them that Jesus has not already paid for. They are justified. They are forever at peace with God. Because God has declared them innocent. God has declared them righteous and forgiven based upon the work of Christ. And friend, this is good news. This is very good news. Here's what this means. If tomorrow morning you wake up and you feel awful. I mean, you feel Terrible. You are miserable like you just want to hide and stay in your bed all day watching Netflix. Listen, you are still justified. You are still reconciled to God. Your bad feelings do not impact or change or negate God's declaration that has been made based upon the work of Christ. And if tomorrow you wake up feeling great, you are ready to light the fires and kick the tires and you are ready to take on the day and to conquer the world you are still justified. Your good feelings, your happy feelings do not change or alter your justification in any way. Your bad feelings, your bad days cannot change your standing before God. Your good feelings, your good days cannot stand or change your standing before God because justification is a gift. A gift that you have been given in Christ and it is based solely upon His performance, not yours. It is firm. It is fixed. It cannot be altered. It results in permanent peace with God. Now, here's why this is so important. You might be thinking, why are you making such a big deal about this? Why are you getting so worked up about justification? Note this on your outline. Number four, because without Jesus, apart from Jesus, you are not at peace with God, but are at war with him. 
Ephesians 2.3 says that before faith in Christ, we were all children of wrath. We were all deserving of God's wrath, of, of condemnation for our sins. Romans 5.10 says that in our natural sinful condition, apart from Christ, we are God's enemies. We are God's enemies. Let that sink in for a moment. Children of wrath. Enemies of God. This is not how you want your life to play out. This is not how you, this is not the trajectory that you want your life to proceed and to continue on as an enemy of God, as a child of wrath, sentenced to an eternal hell. And again, friend, this is what makes the good news of the gospel so great. This is what makes Jesus Christ such an unbelievable Savior. Colossians 1.19 says, For in Him, referring to Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. There is life to be found. There is peace to be found, but it is only found in Jesus Christ. Jesus provides and gives a peace that changes everything, that gives us guidance and comfort and security, not only in this life, but in the life to come for all of eternity. Again, to quote our friend J.C. Ryle, he writes, There is nothing lacking on Christ's part for our comfort. If we will only come to Him, believe and receive. The chief of sinners has no cause to be afraid. If we will only look to the one true Savior, there is medicine for every trouble of heart. Half our doubts and fears arise from dim perceptions of the real nature of Christ's gospel. He's right. Our problem is that we fail to see, we fail to appreciate how great a salvation we've been given in Christ. We fail to understand the fullness, the richness of justification. We fail to discern our present joyous condition of being eternally at peace with God, which is what Jesus provides and gives to each and every one of his children. Now, admittedly, there are some facts. There are some truths that we need to face, that we need to address head on. Otherwise, we might walk out these doors with some very wrong notions, with some wrong ideas about the peace that Jesus gives. Please note this on your outline number five. The peace of Christ does not guarantee that we will always experience peaceful circumstances. Okay, the peace of Christ does not guarantee that in this life we will always experience peaceful people and peaceful circumstances. All we need to do is to look at the life of Jesus to see that this is true. Jesus faced fierce opposition from those who hated him, from those who didn't understand him. Jesus was mocked and maligned. He was lied about. Jesus was opposed by his own family, by his fellow countrymen, by the religious leaders, by demonic powers and by the Roman civil authorities. So while Jesus guarantees us perfect peace with God, 
He does not guarantee that we will always experience peaceful people and peaceful circumstances. In fact, quite to the contrary, Jesus promises that in this life we will experience hardship. We will experience trials of of various kinds that will come to us. And, And friend, this is part of living in a world infected with sin. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So even in the midst of trial and hardship, even in the midst of of very difficult things, even in the midst of, of living in a world fallen and broken and corroded with sin, we can experience the peace of Christ here and now. Even when experiencing things like persecution, a broken marriage, a strange family relationship, the the loss of a job, the unexpected death of a loved one, a shooting in a school. Brothers and sisters, we can and we must remain confident in Christ. We can and we must remain confident in His grace and in His sovereignty and in His ability to work all things together for good to those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose we can be confident knowing that we are presently reconciled to the one true sovereign god who will one day return and who will make all things new this is why jesus says at the end of verse 27 let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid Now, admittedly, this might sound a little strange to us. This may sound a little strange to our ears. We might be tempted to think, well, if if peace is a gift, if peace is something that, that Jesus gives, then why does he tell his disciples to not let their hearts be afraid? Why does he tell them to to not be troubled, to not be afraid? Or maybe to ask the question another way, if peace is something that we are given, then why are we commanded to not be troubled, to not be afraid? Shouldn't that happen automatically? The answer is not necessarily. Not necessarily. Please note this on your outline. Number six, we must allow, we must allow the objective reality of our peace with God to control and direct our thinking, our emotions, our attitude and and daily experience. It won't happen automatically. It won't happen automatically. If if we're honest, I think we would have to admit that there are lots of times in this life where we do not always experience the peace of Christ in our lives. There are times when we find ourselves tempted to worry. When we are tempted to be anxious. When we are tempted to despair. We are tempted, I think, each and every morning to wake up and to forget Christ. To forget His goodness, to forget His grace, to forget the peace which He has purchased for us and given to us. We are tempted to forget. I think it is very easy for us to wake up and to take our eyes off of Christ. 
to be to become easily troubled, easily worried, easily afraid, thinking only of our present difficult circumstances. I think this is why the Apostle Paul in, in Galatians chapter 3 gives us these words. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Brothers and sisters, we must choose to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We must choose to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly each and every day. We must not be passive. We must be active in appropriating and in thinking upon and in dwelling upon the goodness and the grace and the victory of Jesus Christ. So I wonder, did the peace of Christ rule in your heart this past week? Did it? Did the peace of Christ rule in your heart this past week? And perhaps a more important question to ask would be, is the peace of Christ going to rule in your heart this week? Will the peace of Christ rule in your heart and mind even today? For the remainder of the day, brothers and sisters, we must allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. We must allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. And by God's grace, this is the reality for those who place their faith and trust in him. Look with me again at verse 28. Verse 28. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now we come to question number three. Question three on your outline. Why should the disciples rejoice that Jesus is leaving and going to the Father? I mean, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be much better for Jesus to not ascend into heaven, but for Jesus to just remain on this earth, on this planet with his disciples. Here, Jesus acknowledges that the disciples have heard him. They have at least understood to some degree that he is going away. He is going to leave them at least for a time. Jesus had told them repeatedly about his upcoming death. They had heard Jesus' words, but they didn't really understand at least the fullness of them. They didn't quite yet understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't understand how Jesus would eventually come to them after his death. They certainly did not see the full narrative, the way that we are blessed to see it, how we see Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, his righteous life, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And we are longing and, and waiting for his return. We see that big picture narrative. The disciples were not privileged or blessed in this moment to quite see and fully understand these things. And so Jesus says something to them that again sounds a little strange to our ears. Jesus says to them, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Why does Jesus say this? Why does Jesus say, if you loved me, 
if you loved me. Ouch. Didn't, didn't the disciples love Jesus? Didn't, didn't the disciples love Jesus? Hadn't they followed him? Didn't they love Christ? Yes, they loved him, but not fully. Not with full knowledge, not with right understanding of his redemptive work. Not, they didn't love him in a way that puts all the focus and all the attention on him and on his glory and on his redemptive work. You know this, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is outward looking. Love is not self-absorbed and self-focused and always thinking about self-love. Love is determined to seek the good of the one being loved. But in this moment, who are the disciples concerned with? Who are the disciples thinking about? Just themselves. They are at this time self-centered. They are at this time preoccupied with their own wishes, their, their own desires for safety and comfort. By his words, Jesus is revealing to the disciples that they are thinking only of themselves. They are not yet focused on his glory, on, on his mission as they ought to be. They are not eager like Jesus is to fulfill the Father's will and to see him glorified. The disciples were, as I think we are all tempted to be, self-centered, selfish, self-focused. And so Jesus says to them, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. In other words, if you were loving me rightly, you would be thinking about me and my glory and my mission. You would rejoice because I am going to conquer sin and death. I am going to ascend back to the Father. I am going to once again manifest my full glory, the glory that I had before I came to the earth. And by the way, this, this matter of Jesus ascending back into heaven and again manifesting the fullness of his glory is something that weighs heavy on his heart and mind. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 5, Jesus would say these words as he prays to the Father. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This weighs heavy on the heart and mind of Christ. And yet, sadly, the disciples are failing to be passionate for the glory of Christ. To be passionate to see Jesus accomplish the will of the Father and to manifest His glory. And yet, brothers and sisters, how often are we guilty of exactly the same thing? How often are, are we guilty? How often am I guilty to just think about myself? To think about my comfort? To think about my desires and to give no attention to the glory of Christ. How many days have I lived thinking about my troubles, my problems, my likes and dislikes, my hopes, my goals, my dreams, while I totally ignore what God would have me do in this moment for His glory? How often would Christ look at me or look at us and say, if you loved me, you wouldn't be so concerned about this or that. 
You wouldn't be wasting so much time on this. You wouldn't be so preoccupied in your thinking with that if you loved me, if you were passionate for me, for my glory and for my will. So often our selfish feelings, our selfish words, our selfish actions reveal that we are not as we should be. We are not consumed with the glory of Christ and with His will. And friend, this, this preoccupation with the glory of Christ answers a big question in this verse. Okay, a preoccupation with the glory of Christ explains why Jesus can make this curious little statement at the end of verse 28 where he says, for the father is greater than I. For the father is greater than I. What in the world does Jesus mean by this statement? Is he denying his deity? Is he saying that he is not fully God, that he is less than God? No, not at all. Listen, brothers and sisters, remember that throughout this this book, in the, in the year and two weeks that we have spent studying this book, thus far the Apostle John has gone to great lengths to prove and to demonstrate the deity of Christ. John has continually shown and proven and demonstrated that Jesus is in fact co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. So what does Jesus mean by this statement that the Father is, is greater than Him? Jesus is most certainly not denying His deity. He is not saying that He is inferior, that He is less than God. No, Jesus is merely acknowledging the fact that in His humanity, He has set aside his glory. He has temporarily restricted the use of some of his divine attributes. He has purposefully and intentionally humbled himself, choosing to become the lowliest of servants. He has willingly submitted himself to die an agonizing, humiliating death, hanging naked on a Roman cross. In this way, because of this lowly position that Christ has voluntarily taken upon Himself, because of His submission and willingness to fulfill the Father's plan, Jesus says that the Father is greater. The Apostle Paul explains this very thing in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled Himself. He lowered Himself. He willingly took on flesh to die on a cross. But listen, Paul does not end there in Philippians 2. He goes on to say in the very next verse, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's setting aside of His glory 
was short-lived. As Jesus would ascend back into heaven, he would once again manifest the full radiance of the glory of God. So please do not misunderstand Jesus' words. Jesus has never been less than God. He has always been equal in essence and nature with the Father and with the Spirit. And so, yes, the disciples should rejoice. They should rejoice that Jesus is ascending to the Father because in doing so, Christ will manifest his glory and he will send the promised Holy Spirit. Next, in verse 29, look with me again at John 14, verse 29. Jesus says, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Question number four on your outline. Why does Jesus emphasize that he's telling his disciples all these things in advance? Well, the answer is found in the word believe, believe. Jesus, who knows the future, who is sovereign over the future, says in verse 29, I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe, believe. You may be thinking, believe what? What, what exactly am I supposed to believe? What were the disciples supposed to believe? Simply this, we and they should believe that Jesus is exactly who and what he claimed to be. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the risen Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the great I am. And of course, this ties in beautifully with what Jesus had said earlier in the text about the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come. He would bring to their remembrance all that he had done and said so that they could teach, so that they could write the truth concerning Christ, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So Jesus invites any and all to believe in him, to trust in him, to come to him for life and for his gift of peace. Next, look again at verses 30 and 31. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Question number five on your outline. Why doesn't the ruler of this world have any claim on Jesus? What does this mean and who is Jesus referring to? Who is the ruler of the world? Here Jesus is referring to Satan or or the devil who is called at times in Scripture the little g God of this world or the little r ruler of this world. And he is the little g God, the little r ruler of this world because the true eternal sovereign God allows him for a short time to exercise some measure of authority here on this earth for this time. You'll remember that back in chapter 13, Jesus had made it very clear that one of the 12 disciples 
were going to betray him. Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus, of course, knew who it was that was going to betray him. He knew that Judas Iscariot was the one who was plotting and planning to betray him. And in chapter 13, we are told that Satan enters into Judas. That Satan is is the driving power, the driving influence behind the evil actions of what Judas Iscariot is planning. Now, it's interesting to note what Jesus does not say to his disciples. Jesus does not say to his disciples, watch out, Judas is coming. This is the, watch out, the religious leaders are coming. Watch out, Roman soldiers are, are, are soon going to be here. No, Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming. Jesus knows that Satan was the energizing, the directing power behind Judas, behind the religious leaders who hated him. Satan was using Judas to accomplish his plan of hatred and murder. But... Notice carefully what Jesus says about Satan and about this situation. Look again at at the verse before us. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Now, this is very important. Jesus explains something that is foundational for us to understand, and it's this. Satan is not ultimately in charge of this situation. Judas is not ultimately in charge of this situation. The religious leaders are not in charge. Pilate is not in charge. Herod is not in charge. The Roman soldiers are not in charge. So who's in charge? Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me. Who's in charge? God is in charge. God is always in charge. Never doubt that. Our God is a sovereign God. He is a good God and he is always in charge. The betrayal, the arrest, the death of Jesus is all part of the Father's ultimate plan to save and to redeem sinners and to bring glory unto himself. Jesus wants his disciples and us to know that everything he is doing, he is doing in submission to and in fulfillment of the Father's goodwill. The Father's good plan. Jesus makes it very clear. Satan ain't got nothing on him. Satan has no claim. He has no charge that he can ever bring against Jesus. Satan has no power over Jesus except the power that Jesus allows him to have so that the Father's will would be accomplished. The works of Satan are lies, death, destruction, chaos, alienation from God. But the work of Christ destroys these things. Jesus is life, peace, truth, the way to reconciliation with God. Jesus will one day restore all things and make all things new. So Jesus wants us to know. Jesus wants his disciples to know who is truly in charge of this situation. Lastly, look again at verse 31. Verse 31, Jesus says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Last question, question number six. Why is Jesus' obedience a testimony to the world of his love for the Father? Why is Jesus' obedience a testimony to the world of his love for the Father? Simply this, just as our love for Christ will manifest itself and show itself 
in obedience unto Christ. So Jesus' love for the Father manifests itself in a commitment, in a willingness to fulfill the Father's perfect plan. Why would Jesus submit to the Father's plan? Why would Jesus willingly go to the cross? What is driving Jesus? He tells us in verse 31, I love the Father. I love the Father. Jesus' obedience, the security of our salvation, in reality, rests in the love that exists within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit have together, in love and unity, decided to rescue, redeem Sinful people like you and me. So yes, Jesus went to the cross because of his love for his disciples, his love for us, and because he loves the Father. Jesus loves the Father and is determined to do the Father's will and to bring glory to the Godhead by rescuing, redeeming, and reconciling sinners to himself. And so, friend, If you are here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you. We we would compel you if we could. We would implore you. We would beg you, come to Christ today. Come to Christ today. He is a good Savior. He is a willing Savior who is able to save any and all who come to Him in faith and repentance. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and find the gift of peace. Find the gift of eternal peace with God and the gift of eternal life. If you, if there was someone, if we could be a help to you, if you would like to talk with someone about this, about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus, there will be pastors, uh, elders down front after the service as well as at each exit as you leave. It would be our joy to talk with you about the good news of Jesus Christ and how you can be reconciled to him. Well, there is one more phrase in verse 31 that we need to read, we need to consider, and we need to obey. And it's verse 31. Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. And those are words that we want to apply now. And so I would invite you to rise and we will leave from here. Please stand and we're going to close in a word of prayer together. And then we will sing one closing song together, rejoicing in Christ and his goodness. And then we will be dismissed. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the gift of peace which you make available through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help each one of us to more fully love, trust, and follow Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's close singing together.